11. Mending a caravel man in great part from the prince's household, he went out straight to Cape Blanco, the white headland, which he had been the first to reach in 1441, passing 25 leagues, 75 miles beyond, into the bank or bite of Orgeen. He saw a little island, from which 25 canoes came off to meet him, all hollowed out of logs of wood, with a host of native savages, naked not for swimming in the water, but for their ancient custom. The natives hung their legs over the sides of their boats, and paddled with them like horse, so that our men, looking at them from a distance and quite unused to the sight, thought they were birds that were skimming so over the water. As for their size, the sailors expected much greater marvels in those parts of the world, where every map and traveler's tale made the sea swarm with monsters as big as a continent. But as soon as they saw they were men, then were their hearts full of a new pleasure, for that they saw the chance of a capture. They launched the ship's boat at once, chased them to the shore, and captured fourteen. If the boat had been stronger, the tale would have been longer, for with a crew of seven they could not hold any more prisoners, and so the rest escaped. With a spooty they sailed on to another island, where they found an infinite number of herons, of which they made good cheer, and so returned Nuno Tristan very joyfully to the prince. This last piece of discovery was of much more value than Nuno thought. He saw in it a first-rate slave hunting ground, but it became the starting point for trade and intercourse with the Negro states of the Senegal and the Gambia, to the south and east. It was here, in the Bay of Orgeen, where the long desert coast of the Sahara makes its last bend towards the rich country of the south, that Henry built in 1448 that fort which Kitamosto found, in the next ten years, had become the center of a great European commerce which was also among the first permanent settlements of the new Christian exploration, one of the first steps of modern colonization. And now the volunteer movement had fairly begun, where in the beginning, says Azurara, people had murmured very loudly against the prince's enterprise, each one grumbling as if the infant was spending some part of his property. Now when the way had been fairly opened and the fruits of those lands began to be seen in Portugal in much greater abundance, men began, softly enough, to praise what they had so loudly decried, great and small alike had declared that no profit would ever come of these ventures, but when the cargoes of slaves and gold began to arrive, all were forced to turn their blame into flattery, and to say that the infant was another Alexander the Great, and as they saw the houses of others full of new servants from the new discovered lands and their property always increasing, there were few who did not long to try their fortune in the same adventures. The first great movement of the sort came after Nuno's return at the end of 1443. The men of Lagos took advantage of Henry's settlement so near them in his town of Sagres, to ask for leave to sail at their own cost to the prince's coast of Guinea, for no one could go without his license. One Lankarote, a squire, brought up in the infant's household, an officer of the royal customs in the town of Lagos, and a man of great good sense, was the spokesman of these merchant adventurers. He won his grant very easily. The infant was very glad of his request, and bade him sail under the banner of the Order of Christ, so that six caravels started in the spring of 1444 on the first exploring voyage that we can call national since the prince had begun his work. So, as the beginning of general interest in the crusade of discovery which Henry had now preached to his countrymen for thirty years, as the beginning of the career of Henry's chief captain, the head of his merchant allies, as the beginning, in fact, of a new and bright period, this first voyage of Lankarotes, 
This first armada sent out to find and to conquer the Moors and blacks of the unknown or half-known South, is worth more than a passing notice, and this is not for its interest or importance in the story of discovery pure and simple, but as a proof that the cause of discovery itself had become popular, and as evidence that the cause of trade and of political ambition had become thoroughly identified with that of exploration, the expansion of the European nations, which had languished since the Crusades, had begun again. What was more unfortunate, from a modern standpoint, the African slave trade, as a part of European commerce, begins here too. It is useless to try to explain it away. Henry's own motives were not those of the slave driver, it seems true enough that the captives, when once brought home to Spain, were treated, under his orders, with all kindness, his own wish seems to have been to use this man-hunting traffic as a means to Christianize and civilize the native tribes to win over the whole by the education of a few prisoners, but his captains did not always aim so high. The actual seizure of the captives Moors and Negroes along the coast of Guinea, was as barbarous and as ruthless as most slave drivings. There was hardly a capture made without violence and bloodshed, a raid on a village, a fire and sack and butchery, was the usual course of things the order of the day, and the natives, whatever they might gain when fairly landed in Europe, did not give themselves up very readily to be taught, as a rule, they fought desperately, and killed the men who had come to do them good, whenever they had a chance, the kidnapping, which some of the Spanish patriot writers seem to think of as simply an act of Christian charity, a corporal work of mercy, was at the time a matter of profit and money returns, Negro bodies would sell well, Negro villages would yield plunder, and, like the killing of wild Irish in the 16th century, the prince's men took a black moor hunt as the best of sport. It was hardly wonderful, then, that the later sailors of Kitamosto's day 1456 found all the coast up in arms against them, and that so many fell victims to the deadly poisoned arrows of the Senegal and the Gambia. Every native believed, as they told one of the Portuguese captains in a parley, that the explorers carried off their people to cook and eat them. In most of the speeches that are given us in the chronicle of the time, the masters encourage their men to these slave raids by saying, first, what glory they will get by a victory, next, what a profit can be made sure by a good haul of captives, last, what a generous reward the prince will give for people who can tell him about these lands, sometimes, after reprisals have begun, the whole thing is an affair of vengeance, and thus Lankarot, in the great voyage of 1445, coolly proposes to turn back at Cape Blanco, without an attempt at discovery of any sort, because the purpose of the voyage was now accomplished, a village had been burned, a score of natives had been killed, and twice as many taken, revenge was satisfied, it was only here and there that much was said about the prince's purpose of exploration, of finding the western Nile or, Priester John, or the way round Africa to India, most of the sailors, both men and officers, seem to know that this, or something towards this, is the will of their lord, but it is very few who start for discovery only, and still fewer who go straight on, turning neither to right hand nor left, till they have got well beyond the farthest of previous years, and added some piece of new knowledge to the map of the known world out of the blank of the unknown, what terrified ignorance had done before, greed did now, and the last hindrance was almost worse than the first, so one might say, impatiently, looking at the great expense, the energy, and time and life spent on the voyages of this time, and especially of the years 1444-8, more than 40 ships sail out, 
More than 900 captives are brought home, and the new lands found are all discovered by three or four explorers. National interest seems awakened to very little purpose, but what explains this low progress of discovery, explains also the fact that any progress, however slow, was made at all, apart from the personal action of Henry himself, without the mercantile interest, the prince's death would have been the end and ruin of his schemes for many a year, but for the hope of adventure and of profitable plunder, and the certainty of reward, but for the assurance, so to say, of such and such a revenue on the ventures of the time, Portuguese public opinion would not probably have been much ahead of other varieties of the same organ, in deciding the abstract question to which the prince had given his life. The mob of Lisbon or of Lagos would hardly have been quicker than modern mobs to arise to a notion above that of personal gain. If the cause of discovery and an empire to come had been left to them, the labor leaders might have said then in Spain, as some of them have said today in England, what is all this talk about the empire? What is it to us working men? We don't want the empire. We want more wages. And so when the great leader was dead, and the people were left to carry out his will, his spiritual foresight of great scientific discoveries, his ideas of conversion and civilization, were not the things for the sake of which ordinary men were reconciled to his scheme and ready to finish his work. If they thought or spoke or twelled for the finding of the way to India, it was to find the gold and spices and jewels of an earthly paradise. This is not fancy. It is simply impossible to draw any other conclusion from the original accounts of these voyages in Azurara's chronicle. For Azurara himself, though one of Henry's first converts, a man who realized something of the grandeur of his master's schemes and their reach beyond a merely commercial ideal through discovery to empire, yet preserves in the speeches and actions of captains and seamen alike, proof enough of the thoroughly commonplace aims of most of the first discoverers. On the other hand, the strength of the movement lay of course in the few exceptions, as long as all or nearly all the instruments employed were simply buccaneers, with a single eye to trade profits. Discovery could not advance very fast or very far, till the real meaning of the prince's life had impressed his nearest followers with something of his own spirit. There could be no exploration, except by accident, though without this background of material gain no national interest could have been enlisted in exploration at all. Real progress in this case was by the slow increase of that inner circle which really shared Henry's own ambition, of that group of men who went out, not to make bargains or do a little killing but to carry the flag of Portugal and of Christ farther than it had ever been planted before, according to the will of the Lord Infant, and as these men were called to the front, and only as they were there at all, was there any rapid advance, if two sailors, Diego Cam and Bartholomew Dias, could within four years, in two voyages, explore the whole southwest coast of Africa from the equator to the Cape of Tempests or of Good Hope, was it not absurd that the earlier caravels, after Bajander was once passage should hang so many years round the northwest shores of the Sahara, even some of the more genuine discoverers, the most trusted of the prince's household, men like Gileans, the first who saw the coasts beyond the terrible Bajander, or Dionysius Dias, or Andam Gonçalves, or Nuno Tristam, as they come before us in Azurara's chronicle, are more like their men than their master, he thought of the slaves they brought home, with unspeakable pleasure, as to the saving of their souls, which but for him, would have been forever lost, they thought a good deal more, like the crowd that gathered at the slave market in Lagos, of the distribution of the captives, and of the money they would get for each, that those sales, which Azurara describes so vividly, 
Henry had the bearing of one who cared little for amassing plunder, and was known, once and again, to give away his fifth of the spoil, for his spoil was chiefly in the success of his great wishes, but his suite seems to have been as keenly on the lookout for such favors as their lord was easy in bestowing them, to a return to Alancarote's voyage, for that the infant knew, by certain moors that Nuno Tristam had carried off, that in the Isle of Nar, in the Bay of Orgeen, and in the parts thereabout, were more than two hundred souls, the six caravels began with a descent on that island, five boats were launched and thirty men in them, and they set off from the ships about sunset, and rowing all that night, we are told, they came about the time of dawn to the island that they sought, and as day was breaking they got up to a Moorish village close to the shore, where were living all the people in the island, at sight of this the boats crews drew up, and the leaders consulted whether to go on or turn back, it was decided to attack, 30, Portugals, ought to be a match for five or six times as many natives, the sailors landed and rushed upon the villagers and, saw the Moors with their women and children coming out of their huts as fast as they could, when they caught sight of their enemy, and our men, crying out St. James, St. George, Portugal, fell upon them, killing and taking all they could, there you might have seen mothers catch up their children, husbands their wives, each one trying to fly as best he could, some plunged into the sea, others thought to hide themselves in the corners of their hovels, others hid their children underneath the shrubs that grew about there, where our men found them, and at last our Lord God, who gives to all a due reward, to our men gave that day a victory over their enemies, in recompense for all their toil in his service, for they took, what of men, women, and children, 165, without counting the slain, then finding from the captives that there were other well-peopled islands near at hand, they raided these for more prisoners. In their next descent they could not catch any men, but of women and little boys, not yet able to run, they seized seventeen or eighteen, soon after this they did meet the more men bold, who were drawing together on all sides to defend themselves, a great power of three hundred savages chased another raiding party to their boats that the whole expedition had no thought of discovery was plain enough from the fact that Lancarote did not try to go beyond the White Cape Blanco, which had been already passed several times, but turned back directly he found the hunting grounds becoming deserted, and a descent producing no prize, except one girl, who had chosen to go to sleep when the rest of the people fled up country at the first sight of the Christian boats. The voyage was a slave chase from first to last and 235 blacks were the result. Their landing and their sail at Lagos was a day of great excitement. A long-remembered 8th of August, very early in the morning, because of the heat of the later day the sailors began to land their captives, who as they were placed all together in the field by the landing place, were indeed a wonderful sight, for among them there were some that were almost white, a beautiful form and face, others were darker, and others again as black as moles and so hideous, alike in face and body that they looked, to anyone who saw them, the very images of a lower hemisphere, but what heart so stern, exclaims the chronicler, as not to be pierced with pity to see that company, for some held down their heads, crying piteously, others looked mournfully upon one another, others stood moaning very wretchedly, sometimes looking up to the height of heaven, calling out with shrieks of agony, as if invoking the father of nature, others groveled upon the ground, beating their foreheads with their hands, while others again made their moan in a sort of dirge, in their own way, for though one could not understand the words, the sense of all was plain in the agony of those who uttered it, 
but most terrible was that agony when came the partition and each possessor took away his lot. Wives were divided from husbands, fathers from sons, brothers from brothers, each being forced to go where his lot might send him. Parents and children who had been ranged opposite one another, now rushed forward to embrace. If it were for the last time, mothers, holding their little children in their arms, threw themselves down, covering their babes with their own bodies, and yet these slaves were treated with kindness, and no difference was made between them and other and freeborn servants. The younger captives were taught trades, and those who showed that they could manage property were set free and married. Widow ladies treated the girls they bought like their own daughters, and often left them dowries by will, that they might marry as entirely free. Never have I known one of these captives, says Azurara, put in irons like other slaves, or one who did not become a Christian. Often have I been present at the baptisms or marriages of these slaves, when their masters made as much and as solemn a matter of it as if it had been a child or a parent of their own. During Henry's life the action of buccaneers on the African coast was a good deal kept in check by the spirit and example and positive commands of the infant, who sent out his men to explore, and could not prevent some outrages in the course of exploration. Again and again he ordered his captains to act fairly to the natives, to trade with them honorably, and to persuade them by gentler means than kidnapping to come to Europe for a time. In the last years of his life he did succeed in bettering things, by establishing a regular government trade in the Bay of Orgeen he brought a good deal more under control the unchained deviltry of the Portuguese freebooters, Catamosto and Diego Gomez, his most trusted lieutenants of this later time, were real discoverers, who tried to make friends of the natives rather than slaves, in the early days of Portuguese exploration, it may also be said, information, first-hand news of the new countries and their dangers, was absolutely needed and if the Negroes and the Azanagoi Moors could not or would not speak some Christian tongue and guide the caravels to Guinea, they must be carried off and made fit and proper instruments for the work. It would be out of place here to justify or condemn this excuse or to enter on the wider question of the right or wrong of the slave trade in general. It is enough to see how brutally the work of saving the heathen was carried out by the average explorer. When discovery was used as a plea for traffic, no one then questioned the right of Christians to make slaves of heathen blacks, Henry certainly did not, for he used slavery as an education. He made captives of Gentiles for the highest ends, as he believed, to save their souls, and to help him in the way of doing great things for his country and for Christendom. He knew more of the results than of the incidental cruelty, more of the hundreds taken than of the hundreds more killed and maimed and made homeless in the taking. For centuries past Moors had brought back slaves from the south across the Sahara to sell on the coast of Tunis and Morocco, no Christian doubted the right and more than the right the merit of the prince in bringing black slaves by sea from Guinea to Lisbon, where they might be fairly saved from the grasp of Thaumatumat. So if it is said that Henry started the African slave trade of European nations, that must not be understood as the full-blood atrocity of the West Indian planters, for the use he made of his prisoners was utterly different though his action was the cause of incessant abuse of the best end by the worst of means, at the time the gold question was much more important than the slave trade, and most Portuguese, most Europeans nobles, merchants, burghers, farmers, laborers were much more excited by the news and the sight of the first native gold dust than by anything else whatever, it was the first few handfuls of this dust, brought home by Gonçalves in 1442, that had such a magical effect on public opinion that spread the exploring interest from a small circle out into every class.
and that brought forward volunteers on every side, for a guinea voyage was now the favorite plan of every adventurer, but however they may be explained, however natural and even necessary they may seem to be, as things stood in Portugal and in Latin Christendom, the slave trade and the gold hunger hindered the prince's work quite as much as they helped it, if further discovery depended upon trade profits, native interpreters, and the attractions of material interest, there was at least a danger that the discoverers who were not disposed to risk anything, and only went out to align their own pockets, would hang about the well-known coasts till they had loaded all the plunder they could hold, and would then simply reappear at Sagres with so many more souls for the good prince to save, but without a word or a thought of finding of new lands, and this, after all, was the end, but the nearing on the northwest coast of Africa was not what Henry aimed at, so he gave a caravel to one of his household, Gonzalo de Sintra, who had been his stirrup boy, and bade him go straight to the land of Guinea, and that for no cause whatever should he do otherwise. But when de Sintra got to the White Cape Blanco it struck him that, with very little danger he could make some prisoners there. So with a cheerful impudence, in the face of the infant's express commands, he put his ship about and landed in that bay of Orgeen, where so many captures had been made but he was cut off from the rest of the men, and killed with seven others by a host of more than two hundred moors, and the chronicle which tells of all such details at the greatest length, stops to give seven reasons for this, the first serious loss of life the Europeans had suffered in their new African piracies, and for the rest, may God receive the soul that he created and the nature that came forth from him, as it is his very own, habiat duzani menquam crevit et naturum, quadsum established, azurara, Chapter 27. Three other caravels, which quickly followed de Sintra, sailed with special orders to Christianize and civilize the natives wherever and however they could, and the result of this was seen in the daring venture of John Fernandez. This man, the pattern of all the Crusoes of after time, offered to stay on shore among the blacks, to learn what he could of the manners and speech and customs of the people, and so was left along with that bestial and barbarous nation for seven months on the shores of the bank of Orgeen, while in exchange for him an old moor went back to Portugal. Yet a third voyage was made in the spring of 1445 by Nuno Tristam, and of this, says Azurara, I know nothing very exact or at first hand, because Nuno Tristam was dead before the time that King Afonso de Henry's nephew commanded me to write this history, but this much we do know, that he sailed straight to the Isle of Herons in Orgeen that he passed the sandy wilderness and landed in the parts beyond, in a land fertile and full of palm trees, and having landed he took a score of prisoners, and Nuno Tristam was the first to see the country of the real blacks. In other words, Nuno reached Cape Palmer, far beyond Cape Blanco, where he saw the palms and got the all-important certainty that the desert did end somewhere, and that beyond, instead of a country unapproachable from the heat, where the very seas were perpetually boiling as if in a cauldron, there was a land richer than any northern climate, through which men could pass to the south. Still further was this proved by the next voyage, which reached the end of the great western trend of the African coast, and found that instead of the continent stretching out farther and farther to an infinite breadth, there was an immense contraction of the coast. Dionysius, the eldest of that family which gave to Portugal some of her greatest men and makers, now begged a caravel from the prince with the promise of doing more with it than any had done before. He had done well under old King John, and now he kept his word, passing Argene and Cape Blanco and Cape Palmer. He entered the mouth of the Senegal, the Western Nile, 
which was now fixed as the northern limit of Guinea, or Blackman's land, nor was this a little honor for our prince, whose mighty power was thus brought to bear upon the people so far distant from our land and so near to that of Egypt. For Zerara like Dias, like Henry himself, thought not only that the Senegal was the Niger, the western Nile of the blacks, but that the caravels of Portugal were far nearer to India than was the fact, were getting close to the mountains of the moon and the sources of the Nile. But Dias was not content with this. He had reached and passed, as he thought, the great western stream up which men might sail, in the belief of the time, to the mysterious sources of the world's greatest river, and so down by the eastern and northern course of the same to Cairo and the Christian seas. He now sailed on to a great cape, which he named Cape Bird, a green and beautiful headland covered with grass and trees and dotted with native villages, running out into the western ocean far beyond any other land and beyond which, in turn, there was no more western coast, but only southern and eastern. From this point Dias returned to Portugal, but great was the wonder of the people of the coast in seeing his caravel, for never had they seen or heard tell of the like, but some thought it was a fish, others were sure it was a phantom, others again said it might be a bird that had that way of skimming along the surface of the sea. Four of them picked up courage to venture out in a canoe and try to settle this doubt. Out they went in their little boat all made from one hollow tree, but when they saw that there were men on board the caravel they fled to the shore and, the wind falling our men could not overtake, and though the booty of Dionysius Dias was far less than what others had brought home before him, the prince made very much of his getting to that land of Negroes and Cape Verde and the Senegal, and with reason, for these discoveries assured the success of his work, and from this time all trouble and opposition were at an end. Mariners now went out to sail to the golden country that had been found or to the spice land that was now so near, men passed at once from extreme apathy or extreme terror to an equally extreme confidence, they seemed to think the fruit was within reach for them to gather, before the tree had been half climbed, long before Fernando Po had been reached, while the caravels were still off the coasts of Sierra Leone, men at home, from King Afonso to the common seamen of the ports thought the line of Tunis and even of Alexandria had been long passed. The difficult first step seemed all. Now three volunteers, Adam Gonçalves, and two others who had already sailed in the prince's service, applied for the command of ships for the discovery and conquest of the lands of Guinea, and to bring back John Fernandez from his exile. Sailing past Cape Blanco they set up there a great wooden cross and, much would it have amazed any one of another nation that should have chanced to pass that way. Not knowing of our voyages along that coast, says Azurara gleefully, giving us proof enough in every casual expression of the sort, often dropped with perfect simplicity and natural truthfulness, that to his knowledge and that of his countrymen, to the Europe of 1450, the Portuguese had had no foreigners along the Guinea coast. A little south of the Bight of Orgeen the caravel sighted a man on the shore making signals to the ships, and coming closer they saw Fernandez who had much to tell. He had completely won over the natives of that part during his seven-month stay, and now he was able to bring the caravels to a market where trinkets were exchanged for slaves and gold with a Moorish chief, a cavalier called Ahud Minem. Then he was taken home to tell his story to the prince, the fleet wasting some time in descents on the tribes of the Bay of Orgeen. When he was first put on shore, John Fernandez told Don Henry, the natives came up to him, took his clothes off him and made him put on others of their own make. Then they took him up the country, which was very scantily clothed with grass, with a sandy and stony soil, growing hardly any trees, 
a few thorns and palms were the only relief to the barren monotony of this African prairie, over which wandered a few nomad shepherds in search of pasture for their flocks. There were no flowers, no running streams to light up the waste, so Fernandez thought at first, till he found one or two exceptions that proved the rule. The natives got their water from wells, spoke a tongue and wrote a writing that was different from that of the other moors, though all these people, in the upland, were Moslems, like the Berbers nearer home, for they themselves were a tribe, the Azanagoi tribe, of the great Berber family, who had four times in the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries come over to help the Moslem power in Spain, yet, said Fernandez, these Moors of the West are quite barbarous, they had neither law nor lordship, their food is milk and the seeds of wild mountain herbs and roots, meat and bread are both rare luxuries, and so is fish for those on the upland, but the Moors of the coast eat nothing else, and for months together I have seen those I lived among, their horses and their dogs, eating and drinking only milk, like infants, tears no wonder they are weaker than the Negroes of the South with whom they are ever at war, fighting with treachery and not with strength, they dress in leather leather breeches and jackets, but some of the richer wear a native mantle over their shoulders such rich men as keep good swift horses and brood mares. It was about the trade and religion of the country that Fernandez was specially questioned, and his answers were not encouraging on either point. The people were bigot, ignorant worshippers of the abominations of Mahomet, he said, and their traffic in slaves and gold was a small matter after all. The only gold he saw in their country was in ankle rings on the women of the chiefs, the gold dust and black bodies they got from the Negroes they took to Tunis and the Mediterranean coast on camels. Their salt, on which they set great store, was from the Tagaza salt quarries, far inland. The chief, Ahudnimen, who had been so kind to Fernandez, lived in the upland. The Christian stranger had been induced to ride up from the coast, and had reached the court only after tortures of thirst. The water if, 